Our worship continues as we turn our attention to the Word of God. I trust you have a copy of the Scriptures with you this morning. A scripture reading is taken from 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy and the third chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and reading from verse 1 to the end of verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Praise be to you, Lord, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. So now, our God, we give thanks to you and praise your glorious name. But who are we? Our Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty. We acknowledge your glorious strength, your purity, your spotless sinlessness, your faithfulness to your works and ways. But who are we? For Father, whilst we claim your name, and whilst we confess to be your people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
Nevertheless, we have fallen short of your glory. That this past week, our Father, even these past hours, we have not loved you as we ought. Our words, our thoughts, our actions have not been pleasing in your sight. And therefore, our Father, whilst we come in adoration, we also come with confession. Our Father, where is the reverence due your name? Where is that overwhelming sense of your glory that would put us in the dust? Forgive us, O God, that we think too much of ourselves. We think too much of our own capabilities. We think too much of our own abilities. Pardon us, O God, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For we thank you that we come to a God who is altogether righteous and altogether just. And thus, amazing as it is to us, you will not deal with us as our sins deserve. You have dealt with them in your beloved Son, Christ Jesus. And that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we bless you for who you are and for what you have done for us. And Father, we come together to uphold one another, to pray for one another. For there are those of our number, our God, who are sick. Some who cannot even be with us. They need the sense of your presence. They need, our Father, your healing touch upon their lives. For those who are lonely, for those who are discouraged, for those who are facing almost insurmountable obstacles and seem to be hurdles in every way, you, the God who can do more than we can ever ask, think, or imagine, come now, almighty King, and minister to them that faith and that grace which they need. For the grieving, those who have lost loved ones, you, the God of all comfort, come and be their portion, we pray of you. And for those who are serving you, whether it be here locally, nationally, internationally, we pray, our Father, for them, that as they go forth as heralds of the gospel, they might know that, that power from on high, that equipage of your spirit, that their ministry will be by your power and for your praise. So, our Father, we commit these things to your care and keeping. And once again, as has already been prayed this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Forgive the sins of the one who speaks for they are many. Grant that we may see no man, 
save Jesus Christ and hear no voice except that still, small voice of the Lord God Almighty. Come to us now and be our portion, we pray, and tune our hearts to worship you aright. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord willing, in, I think it's only about two weeks' time, on Sunday the 27th, uh, you will be, as a church, holding your annual general meeting. One area of business during that meeting has to do with the topic of eldership. And so I have been asked this morning if I would give some attention to this topic of eldership. And while that uh, means departing from our series on the 23rd Sam, the departure is but a small one. For you see, what is an elder but an under-shepherd of the good and the great and the chief shepherd. That the, the conduct and the character of Jehovah our shepherd as portrayed in the 23rd Psalm is in many ways a blueprint for the eldership of a local congregation. And by way of introduction, I want to just uh, uh, highlight something of the, the terminology that is involved with this subject. For I will be referring to terms such as elder, pastor, overseer, or, or bishop. And I'll be using those three terms because they are used interchangeably in the New Testament to point to the same figure of a man, the same office. There is no distinction in the scriptures between an elder, a pastor, or an overseer, or bishop. To try and put it as simply as I can, the term elder would, would point to the maturity of the man. The term pastor refers to the ministry of the man, and overseer or bishop something of the management of this man. So in, in a, a, a local congregation, you will probably have one paid pastor, elder, and various other unpaid pastors and elders. But they all have the same rule and they all have the same rank. And the implications of that are highly significant. Let me illustrate in your own situation here at Packham. You are currently seeking carefully, diligently, prayerfully for a new pastor. 
Well, that same carefulness and that same diligence and that same prayerfulness must also be behind your seeking for an appointment of any elders in your midst. For they are the same rank and they hold the same office. They may vary in giftedness, but not in character or conduct. So given that, I want to consider with you something of the character of an elder, something of the calling of an elder, and then something of the congregation and the elder. So the character of an elder. What kind of a man are you looking for? One with, with, with good management skills? A people person? A go-getter? A man with a good personality? A motivator? Someone who's outstandingly gifted? What kind of a man makes a good elder? Well, as the church belongs to Christ, he has made it abundantly clear what are the attributes and qualifications for those who would be elders under shepherds of Christ, the good shepherd. I take you back to that portion that I read in your hearing just a few moments ago. To Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 2. There we hear these words. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. Now that is not a good suggestion. It is a divine imperative. Must be. Here is where it all begins or ends. And what wit you as a congregation gives to these words will determine the rise and fall of this congregation. That's how important they are. What's implied? A pastor, an elder, must be above reproach, blameless. No, it has no reference, and I'm not speaking about sinless perfection. But it's a term that is used of a man who above everything else is devoted to God. A man who displays an exemplary degree of Christ-likeness. A man free from conspicuous sins. You see, let me put it like this. Christ, our good shepherd, our good pastor, our good elder guides and guards and grows his flock through the appointment of little Christs who are his under-shepherds. 
little Christ. You know that word, don't you? It's our word Christian. That's all Christian means. They look like the one whose name they bear. They look like Christ. They are real in this world in which we live. And thus the point is, as far as an elder is concerned, it's not a matter of a man's ability, but his credibility. It's not even a matter of his giftedness. It has to do with his graces. It's not a matter of his competence. It is a matter of his Christ-likeness. He must be above reproach. So what does that look like? Well, Paul unpacks his statement here in 1 Timothy 3 by highlighting six required qualities and four disqualifying qualities. Here he lists what an elder pastor should look like, must look like. Now, each, each attribute is worthy of a sermon. I only have one. So allow me just to make a running comment on each to trigger off some thoughts in your own mind. Six qualities of being above reproach. Faithful to his wife. That might point to the fact of a man is married or is of marriageable age. A man whose love and care for his own bride indicates his love and care for Christ's bride. A faithful husband, and so a man devoted to his Lord. Not a recent convert, not a novice, but a man with integrity and a history that can be examined and must be examined. A one-woman kind of a man, faithful to his wife. Number two, he must be sober-minded. That is, he regards his call to this office with all due humility and reverence and godly fear. He doesn't regard it in any sense of flippancy. His regard for Christ and his church is a regard that recognizes it as a holy place and requiring all reverence. Number three, he must be self-controlled. A sign of being a spirit-filled man. He lives under the control of God's spirit because that's what it means to be spirit-filled. A spirit-filled person is a person controlled by the spirit of God who uses the word of God to shape his conduct and his character. Thus, this man who would be an elder lives in submission to the scriptures. 
Number four, he is to be respectable. A man whose behavior causes him to be held in high esteem. A man who, who, who evokes admiration from family, from friends, from neighbors, from those at home, at work, at play. He's to be well-known and well-spoken of from those who are outside of the church. Let me just add this. Many, many years ago, I was involved in a church plant. And we had to call elders as a young church. And there was one outstanding character. And we examined him to the point of speaking with his employer. To see what kind of employee he was. We weren't, weren't willing to be fooled by how he appeared on a Sunday. We wanted to know what he was like in the workplace. Was he sober-minded? Was he self-controlled? Was he respectable? Number five, given to hospitality. This is a nice little one, isn't it? Hospitality. Well, we'll you know, somebody have you over for coffee in the morning or maybe take you out for lunch. No, folks, it's not that simple. The picture here by this term is here is a man who is full of care and compassion for those who are in need. You see, it was used culturally in the sense of a day when, you know, they didn't have motels or hotels or bed and breakfast the way we have. Traveling evangelists, preachers, where would they go? They have to be cared for by people in the church. And there were actually stipulations of how long they could stay in a church so that they didn't wear out their welcome or stay in a home, rather. If you want to know what hospitality looks like, read Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Remember Jesus speaks about giving me a drop of water, visiting me in prison. That's hospitality. Caring. Caring for those in need. And then number six, they must be able to teach. Listen to how Paul comments on this in Titus 1 verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So that a person, a man, a man who would be an elder, pastor, overseer, must be a defender of the faith as well as a declarer of the faith. They must have a solid grasp of biblical doctrine so that they can clearly communicate the whole counsel of God, be it to a congregation on a Sunday morning or one by one in private counseling capacity. Because as I hinted at already, while not all elders are gifted to teach publicly, all must be able to teach, be it one-on-one -on -one or small group. But they must be able to instruct in that faith which has been delivered to the saints. Six qualities of being above reproach. So what are the four disqualifying qualities? Well, here they are. 
He's not to be a drunkard. The perils of intoxication and addiction are graphically set forth for us in Luke 12, 45 and verses 21 to 34. Here is the, 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 the opposite, you see, of self-control. And while Scripture does not require elders to abstain from alcohol, they must have the capacity for self-denial. In some way, given today's culture, a, a man, or rather in the same way, a man who would serve as an elder must have no relationship or addiction to drugs, pornography, gambling, alcohol. Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Because, my friends, there is such a thing as pastoral abuse. Heavy-handed shepherding. The emphasis on the program of the church and not the people of the church. A destructive leadership that uses position and power for personal advancement. A culture of control. But an elder is not violent but gentle. Not weak but meek. Because yes, he must be able to fight the good fight of faith. And needs be, he must be able to reprove and rebuke and exhort. But in what spirit? 2 Timothy 2.25 Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Gentleness, making allowances instead of marked aggression. Number three, not quarrelsome. Elders don't get bogged down in petty controversy. In the words of Proverbs 20 and verse 3, it is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Not quarrelsome. And thus, fourthly, not a lover of money. Greed is inconsistent with godliness. And yet reality, sadly, there are those who seek the office of elder pastor due to the salary and maybe the simplicity one might understand of the pastoral work without a heart's concern and well-being for the people. An elder is one who, like the apostle, had learned to be content, whether in plenty or in poverty. Now these, my friends, are but some indications of the character of the man who would be an elder. And the implication is this. The scripture says little about the activities of an elder, but rather a lot on the attributes of an elder. It's who the man is that is vitally important, not what can he do. He must be above 
reproach. In his attachments, in his attitudes, in his affections, and in his attainments. And as I said, what wit, what importance you give to that God-given command will determine the rise or fall of Pakenham Baptist Church. That's how serious it is. The character of an elder. What about the calling of an elder? Well, I'm not thinking of the man's appointment, for that has denominational variations. And even within uh, denomination, there are variations. There are different ways of appointments. Uh, some of you know that in some Baptist churches, elders appoint fellow elders, and others, elders recommend to a congregation and others still, the congregation deals with it fully and completely. Whatever that be, my concern this morning is, how does a man find himself an elder in a congregation? And again, I am going to give you five quick, simple steps. And the first is this. A man who would be an elder knows something of a personal aspiration to that office. Here's where it starts with him, humanly speaking. Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God. There's an inward call that is experienced, that gives rise to an inward desire and an aspiration for that office and position. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 that we read, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, and that aspiration is planted by the Spirit of the living God. It's a personal aspiration. But then, second step, there is an honest examination. How does, this, how does this man see himself? How does he measure himself in light of those biblical requirements, the characteristics that are essential to this office that we have just walked through? How does he see himself? Does he look through those things that we have work, walked through and come to the conclusion, yes, I, I am above reproach. Yes, I am blameless. I can stand for office. Personal aspiration, honest examination, and the third step, a genuine humiliation. Listen. The man who says that his character accords with the biblical requirements is not the man for the job. There is nothing more dangerous than an unrealistic view of human nature, particularly our own. We always think we're better than we are, beloved. We're not as good as we are. We're not as competent as we are. We're not as godly as we pretend to be. Remember Moses at the burning bush? 
God revealed himself and he called Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How did Moses respond? He hid his face. He was afraid. And he said to God, who am I? Who am the likes of me would go to Pharaoh? And that is the proper response of God's call. It's not, yes, I can do that job. I can fulfill that role. No, 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 no. It's, who am I? Humility. A chief Christian virtue. And so the fourth step, an external confirmation. While a sense of inadequacy and diffidence is felt by the man, his testimony and ministry already being exercised is recognized by the leadership and by the congregation itself. In other words, the man being considered is already manifesting to the congregation a prayerfulness, a tenderness, a gentleness, a willingness to serve quietly, reverently, and loyally. Because, you see, there is a sense in which an elder is an elder before anybody puts hands upon him and calls him to office. Those biblical credentials and spiritual characteristics, though downplayed by him, are observed by others. And hence, the fifth and final step. He is called and appointed to the office, even though he sees himself as totally unworthy of that office. And so thirdly and finally, the congregation and the eldership. And just two things here. And the first is this. The elders, plural, because the eldership is always in a plurality. Uh, there's no such thing in the New Testament as an elder, the elder, the pastor. The government in the church is in the hands of the plurality of elders and the elders rule. The church, beloved, is not a democracy. In the real sense, it's a theocracy. Christ is the head and he rules by his spirit and his word through men called elders, pastors, overseers. And thus their distinguishing qualification, able to teach. For an elder is a pastor, and that's simply the word for a shepherd. And his task is to, to feed and to care for his sheep. And this points to the, the centrality of the scriptures in our worship. For by its reading and proclamation, sinners are saved and saints are sanctified. You see, historically, you know, the reading of the scriptures, the reading of the Bible, 
That was the central point in worship. That was the high point in a worship service, the reading of the scriptures. Because worship is is not about connecting with people, but engaging with God in the terms that he has given to us. And so by God's spirit and the word of God, light comes into our darkness, our deadness is quickened, and our dryness is quenched. And by the teaching of Scripture, its truths, if I may quote, reverberate from the congregation as it sings, pleads the promises of God when it prays, and submits to the precepts of God when it's preached. Elders must be defenders of the faith. Those who declare its truth maintain its authority and centrality in all of our worship. And so secondly, the elders represent or reflect their congregation. What do I mean? Well, simply this. When you read in Acts, you find that the apostles appointed elders in every church. And Paul's exhortation to Titus was, put remains in order and appoint elders elders. That means, beloved, that men above reproach could be found in those churches. That above reproach was the spiritual standard of these early saints. That above reproach was the characteristic of the early Christians. And so is that true of us? Is this congregation at Pakenham noted for its passion for purity in worship? For its blamelessness in behavior? That is a congregation. It's above reproach. Surely it ought to be. For as God's people, we are to live godly lives and holy lives. That those characteristics that I spoke about are nothing more nor less than the traits of Christian character. They are simply, beloved, the the distinguishing marks of a believer. You know, we, we, we thank God for those who were baptized last week. But they with us have been called to be perfect. You know, the old bumper sticker. You know, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. Absolute heresy and rubbish. We are called to go on to perfection. We are called to be holy. We are called to self-denial. We are called to put off the old and put on the new. We are called to seek those things that are above, that are at the right hand of Christ. We are called to set our minds on things above. We are called to put to death what is earthly in us. And if you want to know what that looks like, read Colossians 3.5. 
To quote Sinclair Ferguson, it is not possible to be justified without being sanctified and then growing in holiness. That is why Hebrews says sanctification is essential since without, us, without it, none of us will ever see the Lord. Sanctification is as necessary as justification. What was James's theme? Faith without works is dead. So true believers fight the good fight of faith looking unto Jesus. They fight each day to get faith into their hearts and into their lives. We, we pray daily for that sanctifying grace by which we may personally and congregationally be above reproach. So what is an elder? He reflects the passion for righteousness and the glory of God in the heart and mind of his congregation. He humbly shepherds God's flock, guarding and guiding and goading them onto godliness. What is an elder? It's, it's the kind of Christian you and I long to be like. We want to imitate them. We want to follow them because they're following Christ. What is an elder? He's not a professional. He's not a CEO. He's not a master or manager or manipulator. He is a believer who pants after God in prayer. Who weeps over his constant sins and failures. Who strains forward to the holiness of Christ. And the upward call of God. He is out of step with this world. He hungers for God's word. He is an imitator of Christ. A sheep. Ready to be slaughtered. He is an example. To the congregation. Yea. He reflects. The standard. Of that congregation. They are together above reproach. Is that you? Is that me? I'm going to pray. And this morning I'm using a prayer written by Pastor John Piper from his most helpful book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. So let's pray together. God, deliver us from the professionalizers. Deliver us from the low, managing, contriving, maneuvering temper of mind among us. God, give us tears for our sins. Forgive us for being so shallow in prayer, so thin in our grasp of holy verities, so content amid perishing neighbors, so empty of passion and earnestness in all of our conversation. Restore to us the childlike joy of our salvation. Frighten us with the awesome holiness and power of him who can cast both soul and body into hell. 
Cause us to hold the cross with fear and trembling as a hope-filled and offensive tree of life. Grant us nothing, absolutely nothing, the way the world views it. May Christ be all in all. Banish professionalism from our midst, O God, and in its place put passionate prayer, poverty of spirit, hunger for God, rigorous study of holy things, white-hot devotion to Jesus Christ, utter indifference to all material gain, and unremitting labor to rescue the perishing, perfecting the saints, and glorifying our sovereign Lord. Humble us, O God under your mighty hand, and let us rise, not as professionals, but as witnesses and partakers of the suffering of Christ in his awesome name. And all the Lord's people said, Amen. Amen.